My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Christian De La Huerta. Uh, with 30 years of experience, he is a sought-after spiritual teacher, personal transformation coach, and leading voice in the breathwork community. He has traveled the world offering inspiring and transformational retreats, combining psychological and spiritual teachings with lasting and life-changing effects. He is an award-winning, critically acclaimed author. He has spoken at numerous universities and conferences. And as a matter of fact, he's been on the TEDx stage uh, very well received. His new book, Awakening the Soul of Power, was described by multiple Grammy Award winner Gloria Estefan as, quote unquote, a balm for the soul of anyone searching for truth and answers to life's difficult questions. And I'll put it at the beginning of the interview and at the end in uh, your website, uh, Christian will be in the show notes as well, but just for all of those listening, if um, you happen to be uh, in front of your computer, you can check out his website right now as we're going through the interview, but you can find him at www.soulful, S-O-U-L-F-U-L, power, P-O-W-E-R.com. And you can also uh, find his book there and join his mailing list uh, there on his website as well. So to dive right in, Christian, um, you're in Miami. I'm in Orlando. Um, you know, uh, there's been a lot going on down there with the, the condominium collapse and, um, you know, the, the weather hasn't been all that great with the uh, tropical depression and the whatever storm was out there. But um, I was wondering, were you born and raised in Miami? No, uh, David, I wasn't. And by the way, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's um, an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. And I love uh, the work that you're doing on the, on the podcast. I know that it's making a, a big difference in many lives. Uh, so no, I was born in Cuba. I lived my first 10 years of life in Cuba. Um, you know, which, which for most Americans, it's really hard to get what it's like to grow up in a, in a communist uh, regime and, and really autocratic, dictatorial uh, system of government. And, and so in that sense, it's kind of ironic that I'm writing about personal empowerment because in, in that kind of regime, there is no such thing, right? The, the government, the state owns you and tells you what to do, end of story. Um, I was also raised in a really Catholic uh, uh, environment, family. And with all due respect, that was also a very hierarchical, you know, power structure. Uh, power comes from, from above and Pope to archbishops, to cardinals, to arch, archbishops, to bishops, to priests, etc. cetera. Um, and you're pretty much told, right? What, what to believe in and what's right and what's wrong. So, so it's really ironic um, that I'm writing about what it means to live heroically in the 21st century and how do we step into power in a personal power in a different way that is not hierarchical i'm actually really grateful for my first 10 years in in cuba because you know we had a tv but there was nothing worth watching so we grew up reading um and i developed this this lifelong love affair with books and words and, and for that i'm really grateful because i became a really good student it was easy for me to learn how to study. Um, and we also, because there was no TV, we grew up playing outside and inventing our own games and having adventures and cre creating pastimes. 
And it and it's sad to me to see how many kids today are just like you know with their nose to the screen, um, totally disconnected from from nature and from even connection with others, um, in in third dimensional reality. Uh, so one of the, one of the things that happens that because my parents were counter revolutionary, so they actually conspired um, against the Castro regime in the in in, in the beginning, you know, in, in collaboration with with the CIA from here. Um, and out of their pot of friends that were actively involved, they were the only ones who weren't um, shot, uh, you know, who weren't or spent 20 years in prison, political prison. Um, so because of that, there was an implicit message to kind of not let yourself yourself, not let yourself be seen too much. Like it's hard for us to get it here in the States, but in, but in Cuba, I don't know if that's still the case, but in, but. In, in those days, there was definitely what they call a, a, a defense committee. So in every single block, city block, there was one house that was like paid by the government to be a stool pigeon, right? So they watched the goings and comings of everybody and reported to the, to the Secret Service. And so there was that sense of, you know, like literally living, living in fear. Um, and um, because of that, we were conditioned, you know, like to not show up too much right to kind of hide under the under you know like kind of hide away if you could um, and so I one of the results of that is I, I became really introverted and when we came over to the states I didn't speak a word of English and we lived uh, first lived in a small town in Georgia for three years while my father who was a psychiatrist got his licensing here um, so that he could practice medicine here and so you know it's like I didn't there was, I couldn't even speak. There was nothing, nobody in my class who spoke Spanish. So it was kind of a, a sink or swim, but I was a good student, like I said. So I pretty much had a 4.0 in high school, except for one B. And I didn't set out to do this intentionally, like, but I know now looking back on it, that subconsciously I sabotaged my grade point average by getting that one B because there was no way that I could have gotten up in front of a room of hundreds of people and deliver the valedictorian speech. And, and I share that story because that's part of the theme and the teachings that I, that, I, that I talk about in the book is like, how do we free ourselves from all the ways in which we have given up our power, in which we have played small, in which we have allowed ourselves to be held back by, by fears and the self-made prison of fear and limitation um, and, and all the conditioning from childhood and all the stuff that we took on. And so like these days, as you were saying in the introduction, like I speak all over the world. I've spoken in dozens of universities and the TEDx stage so that I know how to, how to transcend all those obstacles and all those fears. Yeah, that, that's incredible. I, uh, we spoke a little bit before uh, beginning the interview and you know, I, I shared with you that I haven't finished your book, but I, I've been blown away. I've actually been focusing on the first few chapters. I've reread them a couple of times. And you know, in the first chapter, I'm pretty sure it's the first chapter where you talk about growing up in Cuba and, and then coming to the States and really, um, you know, some of the adversity that you faced and uh, really struggling with your own personal identity and, yeah. and being authentic. And yeah. I recently I've had several conversations with, with other guests regarding the value of being authentic and not just in, you know, living a good life, a happy life, but how it applies to being a really good leader as well. And, um, and so I was wondering if we could start off maybe talking about some of those early experiences that, that shaped you and who you are and how you overcame those adversities and really, you know, how you were able to harness that that courage to be truly authentic hmm. yeah good question david um 
Yeah, I think what you're what you're pointing to is in addition to my introvertedness, I was also my like my adolescence was one long depression with suicidal fantasies. Um, because at a young age I knew that I was gay. And so there was it was such a difficult thing to try to reconcile my my authentic self, my my sexuality and my spirituality, the religion in which I was raised that told me that I was going to burn to hell for eternity um, for being who I was, you know, for being who I am. And, and I remember being a kid and asking this priest, you know, how long is eternity exactly? And you know, coming from an island environment, he said, well, um, imagine that you're going to go to the beach with a thimble. And you start taking water out of the ocean with a thimble, well, that's eternity, which terrified me because to put things in context, in, in Catholicism, there's different kinds of sins. There's like a hierarchy of sins. And so there's your menial sins that are like you're lying, you're cheating, you're stealing that, you know, they're not that big of a deal. But then there's your other whole other category of mortal sins, which means that if you have committed one of those and you haven't received forgiveness or absolution directly from a priest right this has this cannot be done directly it has to be facilitated by a priest that means that you go to hell for eternity and to put things in further context these days masturbation is still considered a mortal sin like most priests don't hold it that way and don't put that fear in in in, in people but but it still is and so not to mention the unmentionable uh, sin that i was really worried about um, so, so that's why I say that my adolescence was one long depression. Plus my dad being a psychiatrist, there was a whole other layer of like guilt. Oh my God, what if, what if it comes out? You know, will, will people think that, that the psychiatry is, that the psychiatrist is a failure because his son turned out gay, like, like so much internalized, uh, homophobia. And, and, um, so anyway, like, how does one break out through all that? Because these days, like no matter the details, of my life, like a relationship works out or it doesn't. A, a project succeeds or it fails, in quotes. No matter the circumstances, I never ever question my sense of worth. Like that is healed, that is not only self-acceptance, but self-love and self-respect and self-honoring. And so that's why I also know, like everything that I write in, about in this book is from, personal experience. Yeah, I'm influenced by other teachers and I bring in quotes and teachings from others, but it's everything is stuff that I have lived and practiced and still do so that I know, I know the stuff works. Um, and, and so, you know, it all begins with, you know, that's why I write that, why this book is part of a series of three, which the series is called Calling All Heroes. Like, what does it mean to live heroically in, in the 21st century? And which, by the way, is one of the ways in which COVID has served us without minimizing the tragic parts of it. it it's taught us to expand what we think of heroism. You know, like before we used to think either a superhero with a cape and that landing on your, on, you know, on your knee thing, um, or like you, right? Like the, the first responders, the firefighters, uh, the warriors, the people who literally place their lives at risk for the sake of someone else or for the sake of a cause. Now, from because of COVID, we have expanded that to include our medical professionals, our doctors, our nurses, our respiratory therapists, and we've even included our delivery people and our grocery store clerks who literally place their lives at risk to keep the rest of us fed and provided for. Um, so, but what about the rest of us, right? And that's what this book asks. Like, how do, what does it mean to live a heroic life in the 21st century when we don't have a, a horse hitched outside and the armors and the demons to play to, to, to slay except the ones inside of our own heads and so you know that's the first step is that willingness and that courage to to look inside and to ask the hard questions um you know why why do we do the things we do and, and why do certain people trigger us and certain circumstances and why do we create certain patterns of behaviors and certain patterns of relationships that sometimes have us feeling like we're in the same boring movie just with a different actor but it's like hey we've been here before and so what's up with that right so that's what the first part of the book is all about understanding the the mind the ego mind and and help us understand the, the self-made prison that we that we find ourselves in so that 
we can let ourselves free because nobody else can do that for us. It, it occurred to me that uh, you know you were talking about your your father being a psychiatrist, and I don't know at what point the the I think it's what the DSM five when they actually changed that because initially homosexuality was considered to be what a, like a deviant behavior that yeah. there was like some kind of mental uh, defect that that caused it. I mean, like at at the time that you came out, what was the conversation like with your father? I mean, I I don't I I haven't read enough of your book to know what the relationship was like between you and your father, but um, maybe you can share. Yeah, and I think it was it was definitely before DSM five. It was before DSM three because when I was in in college uh, studying psychology, it was DSM three. So I think that was taken off the the, the list of illnesses. Um, I think it was like seventy three. So it was it was earlier on. Um, you know, my father was an amazing man. He was a brilliant man, and and in so many ways, um, and he was a really good psychiatrist. I know because so many people. Um, you know, have told me after the fact I used to go to him, but in in terms of his own emotions, he was clueless. He was clueless, um, and, and as as I was, right as as was I, um, like thirty years ago, I couldn't tell you what I was feeling because I had no idea what I was feeling, and that's how he was. Um, and you know, I think it it was a combination of this more. Um, mental approach, you know, like the, the superiority of reason over the emotions, and that somewhere along the way, somebody had the brilliant idea of labeling the emotions weakness. And, you know, especially for us men, we, you know, since we were kids, we were told little boys don't cry. Right. And there's so much like unspoken stuff about fear of, of homosexuality and gender identity and all this stuff, because if little boys don't cry, that means only little girls cry. And you certainly don't want to be that, right? Because that that's weakness, which is completely twisted. Um, this misperception or this misunderstanding or the labeling of the feminine as weakness is totally twisted and, and just not true. If you want to talk power, let's talk about the power of creation that lies in a female body, the power of creating life. It's like, wow, that's power. And in so many other ways, um, but because somewhere along the way we label the emotions weakness, we run away from them, all of us, but mostly men. And there's a price to pay for that. There's a price to pay for that. You know, what used to be spiritual teaching that everything is energy. Now we know from quantum physics that it's true. Everything is energy. Th that means our bodies, our emotions, everything is energy. Uh, this microphone standing in front of me. Um, energy we know from physics cannot be destroyed. It can only change forms. So just because we stuff emotions, because we label them weakness, doesn't mean they go away. You know, they get, they get stuck and suppressed in, in the subconscious where they're still having an effect. You know, they're still impacting our relationships and the quality of our lives. Just, we're just not aware of what we're doing or why we do the things we do. And that's why this journey of going within, it's nothing short of heroic because the willingness to ask ourselves the hard questions, the existential questions. Um, and, and so the thing about the suppressing the emotions that there's a huge price to pay um, because what happens is we suppress, we suppress, we suppress. And after a lifetime, decades of suppressing emotions, we walk around with layers upon layers upon layers of repressed emotional crap. And here we are trying to have a relationship in the present moment, and it's all getting filtered through that lifetime of suppressed emotions, which we then start dumping on each other's laps and projecting on each other. Like it boggles my mind that any relationship can work because we haven't been taught about how to approach them, how to hold them, and we certainly haven't been taught how to clear ourselves of all this cauldron of suppressed emotions. The other thing that happens, as, as you know, as a coach, um, and as a guide uh, and as a leader in, in, in for so many years in the fire department is that 
if if we don't express those emotions, they can only come out, right? They're, they're gonna come out one way or the other. So we suppress, we suppress, we suppress. Then the next unfortunate one just happens to hit us at the, ro- the wrong day, at the wrong moment, rubs us the wrong way and boom, volcanic eruption, causing harm to our relationships, sometimes irreparably. Um, or we suppress, we suppress, we suppress, that energy has to come out. And so it starts seeping out and showing up in the body as physical symptoms, cancer, heart attacks, ulcers. And, and so it's not an effective strategy. It doesn't work. You touched on something and, and I told you earlier, I definitely wanted to, to discuss it. And you, you start off chapter three and if you don't mind i'd like to read that that sentence of course Uh, so this stems from my conviction that the single most important thing that needs to happen in our world is the empowerment of women and so the the title of that chapter is desperately seeking balance and um you know it talks about the authentic expression of soulful soulful power and you go on to talk about um really how men need to embrace the the power of their own personal femininity and not run away from it yeah yeah and and that's a huge you know conversation an important one um, so yeah, um, the book has a, a particular message for the empowerment of women, stemming from that belief that that is the single most important thing that needs to happen in the world. And, and, and that to me, that's strategic thinking. It's not about idealizing women. It's not about putting women up on a pedestal. Women are also capable of abusing power, right? But it just happens to to have been done very disproportionately in the last several thousand years that men, that we've been in the patriarchy, uh, where, where men have held all the power, or, or most of it anyway. Um, and and so, so when I think about, you know, like what needs to happen in the world, like if, if I'm gonna think strategically, what is one thing that I can focus my limited time on, on this planet, to make a difference in that will then impact other areas, that's what I land on. Because when women are in 50% of power in this world, we're gonna have a very different relationship to war and poverty and hunger and power and how we treat the environment and all of it. Social justice, wealth distribution, all of it. And again, it's not to idealize one over the other. It's because of this imbalance of power that you were mentioning. We've just been running really off balance between the masculine and the feminine, which are energies, right, that everybody has running through them because that's what the universe is. It's a combination of masculine and feminine energies. So much to the surprise of some humans, we're part of the universe, we're part of the cosmos. So we too have both masculine and feminine energies coursing through us. The problem is that we suppress them because we've labeled them weakness. And by the way, that's the reason men get into trouble. Like if we look at some numbers really quickly, um, the rate of longevity in this country, um, women outlive men by five years. If we look at the numbers globally, it's seven years. What's up with that? And if we look at the rate of suicides in this country, I don't have the global ones for, that, for suicide, but in, in the US, men commit suicide, take their lives four times as frequently as women. 70% of all the suicides in this country are committed by middle-aged white men. Like, isn't that weird? Like the, the group that still holds the majority of the power in the world. So what's up with that? And I think that connects to what we were talking about earlier, the price we pay, you know, for this limited, twisted misunderstanding of what it means to, to be masculine, of what it means to be a man. Um, and so because we've got all this conditioning and all this misunderstanding around it, you know, we walk around afraid of the emotions and afraid to feel, and we walk around like hyper-protected in DEFCON 1, just waiting for the next shoe to drop, sometimes sneaking in the first punch, just in case. And, and there's a price to pay for that in our relationships and in our health and in the quality of our lives. 
when I was introducing you, I mentioned that you're a, a sought after spiritual teacher and with your uh, background and upbringing in Catholicism. And I, I noticed there's uh, a statue of the Buddha behind you. And so I would imagine that you've studied Buddhism. Um, but where, um, where would you say your spirituality lies right now? Maybe we'll talk a little bit about your, your philosophy on mm. religion, spirituality, just your philosophy a, in general. That's a beautiful, very thoughtful question, David. Thank you. Uh, yeah, these days I think I fall in the category of spiritual, not religious. Um, and it took me a while, you know, because my adolescence was one long depression. Once I hit my my late teens, early 20s and fell in love and and, be and began to question, you know, the, the, the way in which I had been raised and the philosophy and the worldview in which, in which I had been raised, I, like many people, threw the baby out with a baptismal water. I wanted nothing to do with God or, or, you know, I just couldn't accept that if there was such a thing as, as a, as a, as a, as a deity that intervened in human affairs in a personal way, that how could it allow such needless pain and such needless suffering, not only in my, in my own life, but in the countless millions of people through, throughout history who have gone to death feeling like there was something wrong with them. Um, and I'm not just talking gay people, by the way, I'm just talking anybody because of mistaken and misinterpreted moral teachings, you know, that, that all the teachings about making sexuality a bad thing and demonizing it. It's like, oh my God, the amount of suffering that that has caused. Um, and so towards my late twenties, I had a pretty enviable cushy life. I had a great job and condo on the water and sports car and all that good stuff. And, and yet the more that I had and the more that I was sought after, the more that it started feeling to me like there's got to be more, like this can't be all there is to life. So I began exploring. I had turned eastward and I began to look at some of the Eastern traditions and, and some of the indigenous traditions, um, in which, by the way, that that split between the, the sacred and, and the physical, between sexuality and spirituality isn't there. In many Eastern religions, sexuality was considered a valid path to, to union to, with the sacred. And, and in many indigenous traditions, they just don't have that split. To them, everything is sacred. You know, the trees and the rocks and the, and the fish in the seas and the creepy crawlies and the winged ones and the genitals and the bedroom, right? It's, if God is, if, if we're going to go by the Western teachings that God is omnipresent, that God is everywhere, then listen, don't tell me that God is everywhere except for the bedroom and the genitals, right? That, that just doesn't add up. So it's either, it's either everywhere or it's not. And, and so, but you know, I'm kind of getting sidetracked and what's a fascinating conversation to me. Like how do we bridge this chasm between the sexuality and spirituality? Um, and so, you know, these days, like I honor all traditions. Like I think all traditions have are valid paths and they all, they all hold a piece of the truth. And there's so much commonality, like really important commonalities between them. Um, you know, like the ethic of reciprocity. If we lived only by uh, do unto others as, as you would like them to do unto you, which you find a version of that in every religion, like what a world would we live in? Um, and, and so I honor them all and I challenge them all too. Right. So, so the way that I see it is if, if you can imagine the sacred or God, whatever that word is for you, as, as this beautiful, exquisite, organically shaped, perfectly landscaped, um, perfect temperature swimming pool um, with a bunch of diving boards around it, that to me, that's what the religions um, represent. So to the degree that they are helping us to dive into like that experience and that connection with the sacred, then they're doing their job. And there are many ways to get there um, to the degree that, that they're fostering us are becoming more loving, more compassionate, better human beings, then they're doing their job. And to the degree that they're causing fear and separation in what I call the theological pissing contest, my God is bigger than yours. And it's like, you know, how tragic and how twisted 
that the, the number of wars throughout human history that are based on religion. It is absurd. It's ridiculous. And it's not okay. It's really not okay. Um, and so it, it is like completely antithetical to what any religion fundamentally really is and certainly what the sacred is about. Um, and so I, another way that, that informs me about this is like if we look at the Latin roots, the word religion comes from the Latin religare, which means to rebind. You know, I assume it means rebind to the sacred. Um, and But to me, that still feels kind of, you know, restrictive. Um, whereas the word spirituality comes from the Latin root spirare, and from that root, we get both respiration and inspiration or expiration. So, so that connection between breath and spirit in so many religions, one word can mean breath or spirit, depending on the context. And, and so that feels more, more resonant to me. Like I relate to that a lot more because the breath, if the breath is spirit, right? If, if it's the life giving breath that the sacred texts talk about, we all have access to it indiscriminately. And, and so that feels, that's the kind of spirituality that, that I relate to more. Can you talk about your path to, to really finding your spirituality? Yeah, well, you know, it was, it was like started there in my, um, like I was talking about when I, when, when I hit this existential point as I was approaching 30 and like started really asking the deeper questions, like, what am I really here for? Um, and so I spent a weekend by myself. I had a partner at the time and I said, hey, yo, I just need some time alone this weekend. I didn't watch TV. I didn't allow distractions. I didn't listen to music. I just lived in that question. What do I want from life? And I just, every time I'd get a thought and it could be a huge altruistic thought or it could be completely petty. I wasn't evaluating yet. Right, so I would just write it down. I kept writing, came up with like a list of a hundred things. Then what, once nothing was coming out, nothing else was coming out, then I started eliminating. What do I really want from life? And that was like the majority of the weekend was that, like eliminating, eliminating, eliminating. And finally got it down to three. And let me see if I can remember what they were. The, I wanted to fulfill my, my potential as a human being. And that meant to me in every sense of the word, right? So physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, which I had neglected for a few years. So it, so it was that, that calling to reclaim my, my spirituality and find a way to express it that was a, a match for me. Um, and then I wanted to discover my purpose, like my real soul level, mission level work. Um, and then I wanted, the third one was I wanted to travel and see the world and, and meet people from all different walks of life and, and cultures. I put my list away. I never saw it again. It's probably sitting in one of my books. But I think getting so clear was catalytic. And six months later is when I first heard about breathwork. And it was like an immediate, yep, I want to do that. Tell me when, how much. And in my very first session, everything changed. It's, it's, a, it's a breathing practice um, that you do. You breathe in a particular way uh, for you know, an hour, an hour and a half that comes out of the, the yoga tradition, but was discovered independently here in the West. Are you, uh, in, by any chance, talking about uh, kundalini yoga? Do you know, there's so many different types of, of breath work. And that's one of them. There's a lot of different, different breathing practices that they do in kundalini yoga. Um, this, this is a longer thing, right? This is you do it for like an hour, an hour and a half. Some traditions do it longer. Some traditions you do it for like three, four hours, uh, breathing in a circular connected way. And amazing things happen. Like my very first session, I knew without any doubt that I would never be the same. And I wasn't ever. Like my life was on a, going in a certain direction. I was on a path to get a PhD in psychology. I jumped tracks. I never went for the PhD. And, you know, I've been teaching breathwork now. I'm practicing it for the last 30 years. And I do it all over the world. And, and with high level people, like before the pandemic, I was, I was going to China, you know, three, four times a year working with really high level corporate leaders and tech leaders, millionaires and billionaires. So there's, there's, 
there's breathwork is kind of following the same path that meditation took and then yoga before that in the West. I think breathwork isn't quite there yet in terms of people being aware of it and, and its benefits, but it's, it's, it's headed in that direction. And it just works. I don't know anything more effective in healing past trauma. And I'm talking about people that I've worked with, with serious trauma, you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse, people who've, who've survived dramatic, violent stuff. And, and it gets healed. It gets healed. Um, and which, by the way, with all due respect to the psychotherapy process, in the right hands, with clear intentions and goals, it can be profoundly helpful and, and transformational. And we all know you can sit on somebody's couch for 5, 10, 20, 30 years, repeating the same old crap, and nothing really happens, right? The, the reason for that is that because understanding up here in the mind, what happened to us when we were 5 or 10 or 15, it's good, it's better than being unconscious about it, than having it lurking in the, in the subconscious. Um, but the problem is that that trauma no longer lives in the mind, has now moved into the body and has been somaticized and lives in, in, in the tissues and, the, and the, the cellular memory of our bodies. And so no amount of talking about it is gonna get to it. Uh, so it's a great combination to, like I have therapists who refer people to me when people hit a plateau, when, when they're stuck, uh, when they need you know, some movement in, the, in their therapy process because it just works fast and heals so profoundly at so many levels. It's an amazing practice. I'm, I'm curious, you, you said that you've worked with people, you know, that have experienced some severe trauma, which um, lends me to believe that they probably suffering from PTSD, yeah. uh, seeking to heal from that. And, um, and I'm curious if you have applied those practices with the specific intent of healing somebody that's suffering from PTSD? It just happens, right? It's, it is, like I, like I said, I don't know anything more effective. I mean, maybe there is, I just don't know about it. Um, in terms of healing trauma, whatever you call it, PTSD or whatever you want to call it, um, like it works. It really works. And I've, and I've worked with um, a group of um, uh, veterans um, which I had some misgivings about because, you know, just you just never know what's what's lurking under the surface mind of the mind, and you know some of these some of these bodies are like trained weapons, and so I didn't. Sometimes in breathwork, you you kind of relive. It's a very cathartic process, and a lot of people relive uh, trauma, and so you know I know how to handle it. I'm good about creating the safe container. I know how to intervene, but but working with a group of vets, I was a little worried about because it, there was, I just didn't know. I didn't know what was gonna happen, but for a time I had this guy who was a veteran um, training with me to teach breath work. So with him facilitating, I felt, I felt more comfortable uh, because he knows more of, of the mindset. Um, and, and it was amazing. It was really powerful to witness that got my my wheels turning um, yeah. so uh to, to go back to your book um seeing as i haven't finished it um do you talk about or uh explain the breath work or guide people on how to do it in your book or is I that don't, i give some breathing techniques and practices, but I don't teach or guide this kind of longer breath work because again, it is so powerful. And so I don't feel morally safe um, for that same reason. I just don't know who's reading it and who's go or who's gonna listen to a, a recorded meditation that I create with that particular breathing technique. And if anything happens to them, I don't wanna carry that, you know, morally or legally or in any sense of the word, karmically. Um, but there are other, I mean, there's so many breathing techniques and, and for any opportunity that any viewer and listener has to learn about breathing, I can't recommend it highly enough. That breath is at the core of every meditation practice. It's at the core of yoga. It's at the core of like just about everything. It's like it's our most loyal 
faithful companion on this journey of embodiment. Um, and, and, you know, so many of us have a, like, we don't know how to breathe, right? And connecting back to the emotions, like, I see it all the time. And if we start paying attention, you notice it. Emotions come up. First thing that happens, mm, we shut down those emotions. We, we, I mean, the breathing. We stop breathing or we start breathing really shallowly. And, and that's what anchors, right? Those emotional energies in our bodies. So anything you can, like, there's so many classes online now about breathing techniques and yoga, yoga breathing techniques. And like the one you were talking about, Kundalini breathing techniques um, that just start anywhere. Right. And then little by little, you'll be, you'll be guided to the next step. Um, and it will change your life. It will change your life. Like even what we were talking about earlier about reacting and then regretting, you know, when, when we have that immediate reaction because somebody hurt us or we interpret it as hurt. Um, and then we react and we get them back. Like it's the breath that allows us to, to bring choice back into the equation. Right, so rather than immediately reacting and then regretting, because inevitably, whenever we regret, when we react, we're going to regret it. Right? We're going to say or, or do something that we're going to regret later. Um, even if initially, you know, that if might feel good, well, I show them, but eventually that energy dissipates. And then we, we plummet into, oh my God, how could, I, how could I have said that? That was mean. That was mean. That was really, that's not who I am. Um, that's not who I want to be. Uh, and, and so by learning how to use the breath, we can, um, you know, kind of hijack this process of reactivity, of reacting and regret, and we can bring choice. It, like, it doesn't mean we, 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 it's all about airy fairy, um, you know, hallmarky kind of life. Not at all. We're talking about empowerment. So we get to use all of our emotions, including anger, right? But as we use it at choice not reacting from some subconscious unhealed stuff that happened when we were five um, and some misunderstanding about ourselves from that experience. You know, all these conclusions that we make about ourselves, that we're not good enough, that there's something wrong with us, that we're damaged goods, that we're too much of this, not enough of that, all of it, misunderstandings. So, and that's why it's, this work is heroic. And yes, it's heroic. And yes, it takes work to face our inner demons, but the rewards are so infinite because we can free ourselves and then we can respond and show up to life and to situations from a place of choice rather than being driven by subconscious stuff that we don't, we don't even know about. We're talking about the breath work. Are there any other practices that you would recommend? And you know, maybe we could, we could talk about some of the next steps uh, aside from first people need to buy your book. Yes. Um, but, uh, but yeah, are there any, any practices that you would recommend uh, other yes. than the breath work? For sure. Um, and, and yeah, absolutely buy the book because the book will guide you by the hand and I've designed it to make it manageable, right? So it's short chapters and every chapter has practices. Um, at the end, and it's in the try to make it as fun as possible around the hero's journey. You know, so there's maps and there's um, try to lighten it up because it's it's heroic stuff. It's heavy duty stuff. So trying to you know use a lot of examples from superhero movies and, and that kind of thing. Um, and so. So a different practice that would be really, really helpful is anything you can think of doing that's going to increase your self-awareness, right? That's, that's the starting point. We can't do anything about something that we're not aware about. We can't heal what we can't see, right? So that's the first step, becoming aware of the patterns. So paying attention, right? And, and in, related to this connect, the conversation about power, for example, you can start asking yourself, what are the patterns? In what kind of situations do I tend to give my power away? Is it, for example, in romantic, intimate, sexual relationships? Or maybe it's in, you know, relationship with authority figures, parental, coaches, uh, bosses, you know, religious leaders, that kind of thing. And, and so that's the first step, right? So that we can begin to see the pattern and then we can begin digging deep into, wait a minute, where did that come from? Um, and start going back in time until we can see the source of it 
And then clear, because I promise you that at the source of it, it's a misunderstanding. It's a misunderstanding uh, about something that that we heard or we misheard. So, so for example, our, our parents got divorced when we were young, we were seven, 10, whatever. And to that young mind that didn't know any better, it's like, oh my God, daddy left. Doesn't daddy love me? Like, And then the deeper one, it's like, what's wrong with me? that daddy doesn't love me, right? And then it's not true. Like, we don't know what was going on in their relationship. We don't know what was going on in their minds, in their mindsets, how they were trained and acculturated and conditioned about holding relationships by their parents and their parents before them, et cetera. Uh, we don't know what was going on with their brain biochemistry, with any substances that might have been at play. We take it on personally. We make it about us. And that's tragic and and sad and not necessary right so but we wouldn't know it un unless we're willing to do the work of, of diving in and asking the hard questions and and looking at the stuff that in some cases we spent years decades running away from and and not wanting to feel uh, and yet hard heroic for sure so worthwhile because freedom right? Personal empowerment, meaning and purpose. That's relationships that work, that have a chance at working. That's the rewards. You know, those are the rewards. Um, so it, it all begins with self-awareness. We talked a little bit about that, that turning point for you. And I was wondering if you would mind sharing maybe what has been the most profound change in your life since you've embraced this, this spiritual approach? Oh my God, David, it's just, um, just the, the, the peace of mind, the inner peace, the, the freedom of, of knowing who I am and, and the empowerment of, I get to be who I am wherever I am. Um, I don't have to present the facade or act this way at work and this other way with my partner and this other way at home and this other way with my parents. I just get to be who we are, who I am, wherever I am. And, and like what I was saying earlier, the fact that anything that happens in my life, like I never question my self-worth anymore. Like I never slip into self-doubt. I never slip into uh, self-hatred ever. And, and of course, I, I learn from feedback, you know, so it's not that I feel like I'm done. No, it's like I pay attention. And, and especially if I'm getting similar feedback from more than one source, then I really pay attention. But I don't do the extra layer of self-punishment self that often comes with that. You know, so I go, well, what's, what's wrong with me? Um, you know, I really messed up. You know, that the, the number that we do to ourselves um, we would never, the stuff we tell, tell ourselves, we would never tell anybody else. It's what I call the self-inflicted mind F-bomb. Um, I don't know if I could use the F-bomb in your, in your podcast, but. Yeah, we're all adults. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, because there, it sounds so much better when you actually say it. Um, the self-inflicted mind fuck, yeah. right? And, and it's just so unnecessary, the number that we do on ourselves. So to have stopped that, it's like I, like I live in, in awe and gratitude. And, and the fact that I am living my purpose you know, and the fact that, I, that I'm at a stage in my life where I've learned that no relationship is going to make me happy, that only I am responsible for my own happiness and how unfair to, to put that responsibility, you are going to make me happy um, on somebody else. It's like, oh my God, it's so liberating. It's so empowering um, and on and on and on. But, but I think if I were going to like, all, it all comes from self-love, um, which comes, which is made possible by self-acceptance, which is made possible by self-awareness. So that's why self-awareness is the first step. Which is incredible that we're talking about that particular thing right now, because uh, prior to getting on with you, I, I drove my daughter to her mother's house. And on the way, 
um, I asked her if she would be willing to track, you know, um, take part in this uh, exercise with me. Um, that another guest actually talked with me about. It's uh, really taking turns asking one another, who are you? And mm. really taking a close look. And it's not necessarily for the other person to know who you are, but it's more for you to like, really like, who am I? Because th that is actually something that I've been struggling with. I've spent most of my adult life identifying as a firefighter as you know that was that was who I was and now I don't do that anymore and I've been really like oh man what who am I really and like and I and I'm so I'm still trying to figure that out and we had this amazing conversation um and my daughter opened up to me in such a way that was so beautiful. And I've never had that conversation with anybody else, you know, mm. but, um, you know, as far as like, never asked anybody on like at that level, like, who are you? And I'm, I'm curious because like you are clearly very self-aware, how would you tell, tell your family or tell me or the audience, who are you? Oh man, David, that's a good question. I've been doing dozens of these interviews. Nobody has asked me that. Um, and I love that process, by the way. I don't know if it's the same way that I do it, but you keep asking right? Yes, who are you? Yeah. And who are you? So keep going deeper and keep going deeper and keep going deeper to see what comes out. Um, and, and it's an amazing, very powerful process. Um, so, you know, um, I think this goes back to the, to what we're talking about, the ego, uh, and the baseball and the stadium. Um, and so what I now know, not that I'm there every minute of the day, but what I know I am is the stadium, right? So my own piece of sacred real estate that expresses itself and breathes and animates me. Um, and we all are that, right? We're all that. Um, we just forgot and we think, well, there's tiny, tiny little baseball. Um, and so... Once we step, once, once we understand, which is the first step, understanding how the baseball works and, and the, the self-made prison of the baseball, then we are not only a choice in terms that we don't have to react every time somebody presses, presses our buttons. And in fact, those buttons eventually get flattened so that anybody can press them and nothing happens. Um, but we get to, to live from that place of expansive awareness, which almost has like different physics like you know we use we don't have the language to explain but we use words like miracles or or magic and you know synchronicity um stuff that the rational mind cannot cannot explain how stuff like that happens um and, and so it is a, a magic lived life um doesn't mean that 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 yeah, we don't feel the ups and downs of life of course we're always human and there's gonna be pain, you know, there's gonna be ecstasy, people are gonna come, people are gonna go, we're gonna witness tragic stuff, we're gonna witness incredibly mind-blowing, beautiful, generous stuff. And all throughout, we get to maintain that, that sense of awareness that we are this pocket of consciousness, this, you know, which the Buddhists call the witness consciousness. Um, that is having that experience, having all those experiences, that is having all those emotions, but it doesn't mean that we are those emotions or those experiences. We are so much greater than the jobs that, that we do. We are so much greater that, that all the quote unquote bad stuff we've done in the past, so much greater than our addictions, some are so much greater than all our shortcomings. We are so much greater than our DNA. We are so much greater than all of it. You know, like, and, and, and for me, I feel 
blessed. You know, that that is my primary reference point. Um, and so then, you know, then the rest of it is details, right? Like, all right, what, what I want to do, right? What, what, but rather than, then we come from at it from a whole different perspective, rather than, then, which is a whole other conversation too. How do we know what our purpose is? We don't have to get into it now. Um, but I do whole weekend retreats on that. Um, but knowing that, it's like, to me, that's our deepest source of, of fulfillment. Like, I'm glad I don't have to choose um, between having sex, because I love sex, and, and my living my purpose, living my mission. But if I had to, I don't even have to think about it. It's, it's a clear answer, what I would choose. Such an incredible conversation. I can't thank you enough for allowing me to interview you. Um, what an amazing book. And I look forward, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it, not just once, but multiple times. And um, I've shared it and I know that, uh, I, well, I can't recommend the book enough. So, you know, it's, it's a very easy read. It is fun and it's super interesting. So much so that I, I've gone back and read the first three chapters multiple times. <laughs> like I, it's, uh, I've gotten so much out of it. Um, well, I, I showed you, I, I've highlighted so many things and um, it's just very well informed, thought out. It's, it's not like, um, you know, we've, we've talked about spirituality and, and the like it, it never struck me as being, um, you know, any kind of religious or it, it's more about really embracing who you are and, and discovering yeah. who you are. And yeah. so, yeah, I, I love it. And uh, thank you so much. That means so much coming from you, David. And I so honor the work that you're doing. Um, and, you know, this this new model of leadership that you're teaching others and mentoring for others and embodying, which is more about service, which totally connects to the difference between worldly power and soulful power, which is about service and making a difference rather than I'm going to tell you what to do and you're going to do it my way or the highway. So I, I'm so grateful for the opportunity. I love this, this connection and this conversation and, and Hey, we just live close to each other. We're neighbors. So yeah, yeah. I will definitely uh, reach out because I, I go south quite often. So let me next know. Time, yeah, next time I'm down there, I'll take you out for a drink. Cause, I love that. Uh, I love Miami. It's beautiful. Good. Um, is there anything that you can think of that we did not touch on that you you feel is is very important uh, before we go? Just something to to leave the audience with. You know, there's so much more in the book that we didn't get to, but but the, if we can like re-highlight a message is that there is a way that we can step into our own power that is a match with the goodness in our hearts. That doesn't require that we abuse anybody. It doesn't require that we be corrupted. It doesn't require that we push anybody down, step on them in order for us to feel powerful. Like we can do this. And there is a way that we can free ourselves from whatever happened. And I'm not minimizing any, anybody's trauma, um, but I know it's all, it's possible to heal it all. I know that. Again, thank you so much. And uh, again, if, if you're looking to connect with Christian, you can uh, connect with him uh, via his website, soulfulpower.com, S-O-U-L-F-U-L-P-O-W-E-R.com. And uh, make sure you check out his book. And I'll have his, uh, a link to his website in the show notes. So again, thank you so much. And uh the next, the next step for me is to watch your TEDx talk. Thank you again. Thank you again for doing all you do and for having me on the show. And I look forward to what's next. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. 
follow me on your favorite podcast platform, and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.